18% of our kids between 9th and 12th grade on a yearly basis think about suicide. 13% have a plan. 8% do something about it. 3% actually cause bodily harm, if not death. Last month, two Shawnee Mission Northwest High School students took their own lives in the same week. Those are, those are numbers that are astounding. Those are numbers that in the 10 to 14 year age bracket has increased by 300% over the last 10 years in terms of completed suicides. These are numbers that across the country continue to escalate at a rate of about 30% over the last 10 years in all age groups. We're above average here in Kansas, Missouri too, in a bad way. Uh, 17, 18 per 100,000 every single year. Every, within uh, a year's time, 44,000 people die by suicide in the United States, 800,000 around the world. In the United States, that's one every 40 seconds. For some time, I've wanted to do an episode on mental illness, depression, suicide. Those are important issues that have struck uh, many of us, people we know, family members, loved ones. And I hope that if someone is out there right now who is suffering or knows someone who is suffering, that this will give you some hope and guidance. Our special guest today is Dr. Steve Arkin. I used to work with him in the emergency room in a hospital here in Kansas City. And we've maintained a Facebook relationship uh, through the years. Um, he was pretty transparent about his son, Jason, who took his life a number of years ago and has done a lot for uh, suicide prevention and for helping those who struggle with the disease. And it is a disease, and he will point that out. And so today I'd like to welcome Dr. Steve Arkin. Why don't you uh, just uh, go ahead and tell a little bit about your medical background. Uh, this episode today is on um, suicide and depression and mental illness, and you lost your your son to, uh, to suicide uh, in 2015, correct? Yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate you being here today, but go ahead and tell our listeners just your medical background. Sure. So uh, I'm, I'm originally from Chicago, so I decided to stay close to home after I was at the University of Illinois for undergrad and stayed in downtown Chicago at Rush Medical School. And so that's four years. And then I decided to stay home an extra year to do my internship at Northwestern and then turned to the University of Iowa. So I spent uh, three years doing neurology residency and then a fellowship. In fact, the neurology helped me out a lot because that's the way I was able to meet my wife. Uh, she was also a neurology resident, but uh, she was at the University of Texas in Houston. And uh, we just happened to be in the same place at the same time in Rancho Mirage, which is a of Palm Springs, California. And we were at a meeting and we, uh, we kind of hit it off and it was, it was great. So we spent a couple of years going long distance and then eventually ended up in Kansas City. So uh, I was over there at St. Luke's Hospital for 25 years, and my wife Karen came around and uh, switched over from Research Hospital over St. Luke's, and we did we did our thing. Basically, she was at St. Luke's South, St. Luke's East. I was at the Plaza and doing inpatient, outpatient. So I, I did general neurology. That's what I was trained to do. A little bit of neuromuscular and multiple sclerosis, and uh, and basically enjoyed some time. And then it was time to to teach. So we moved over to Dayton, Ohio, and we both do uh, what's called hospitalist. So we work in the hospitalist uh, setting. So we're in the hospital 
every day, a week on, a week off. Got some students and residents and fellows and teaching the next generation. So, I mean, that's that's what it's all about now. It's our sort of glory years. We're in our 50s and it's time to time to give back and make sure that we're taking care of once we once we need neurologists. So that's where we're at. And it's been great. I mean, we've been here now for for a little over eighteen months, and uh, we've seen a couple classes come and go. And that's that's the beauty of it. We got a new crew of students every time. They're associated with Wright State as assistant professors, and uh, and the residents here. It's a four year residency in neurology. And so we get to hang out with them, teach them, do some lectures and uh, carry them around and ask them questions and watch them grow. So it's a, it's a fun experience. Wow. Why don't you tell us about uh, Jason and, and his story, uh, your son, and you also, as much or as little as you want about your family and, and, and that, I want to hear about him. Sure. So basically what happened as i said we karen and i met in 1992 and uh we we got to go and we kind of found each other a little bit later in life around 30 years old so uh, it was time to go and and basically uh in 1994 as uh, jason arrived in may and uh and then his sister uh jennifer was born uh, about 19 months later so we had our our pair of kids and we were ready to go so uh, jason was was always uh, kind of a go-getter. Uh, he was a perfectionist, meaning that even early in life, he, he didn't like to lose. Uh, but he was a great kid. I mean, he was uh, he was quiet when he needed to be. Uh, he was boisterous and funny when he had to be. And uh, he really kept us on our toes in terms of making sure that we knew what was going on and, uh, and making sure that we were always uh, kind of entertained. So he, he did some cartooning. Uh, he did a lot of writing and certainly did a lot of thinking and reading. In fact, uh, one of his favorite books early in life was Ulysses. Uh, and, uh, I mean, basically, he just, he went after it. And uh, and we knew that he was something special. And, and he was also very socially aware, which uh, is, you know, very common in some, in some folks. But uh, he, he really took it, uh, that he cared about other people. He seemed to have that type of sensitive side where uh, if he knew somebody was in trouble, that he would make sure that he made time to not only hear them out, but also make some suggestions on what to do next. And he had that social awareness about uh, global uh, poverty and hunger. And so he was really, uh, really into uh, trying to figure out how best to to serve other people and to make sure that uh, he made his mark uh, in society. But that sensitivity also kind of, kind of, threw a wrench into things too because if things didn't go right he got a little bit upset so for example if he uh, was playing a game and then things were not going his way he would he basically punish himself and and actually hit himself sometimes uh, in terms of getting things done correctly so we had to be a little bit careful about uh, the way the things were operating in that way but he was a great kid and he went to a boy scout locally in Kansas city. He became an Eagle scout when he was 14 years old. Uh, in fact, his project was to uh, get books and, and also uh, coats to this uh, bilingual school that's in uh, central Kansas city. I'm forgetting the name right now, but uh, he was very instrumental in, in basically uh, caring for that. They had lost uh, a lot of their books due to a mold situation following the flood. So, uh, so that was, going on with with him as well uh he was uh, very interested in in writing as i said and, and doing cartoons and he 
uh, got into some competitions. Actually, he was in the Optimist Club, uh, and he uh, basically wrote a paper and had some some competition in Kansas that he did very well in. And uh, and he was, you know, he had a lot of uh, abilities, even in some sports. He wasn't that great. I mean, for example, uh, we we tried our hardest to get him to be riding his bicycle, and he just didn't want to get it. Got frustrated, so we just ended up not doing it. Uh, but he was uh, in on the swim team. Uh, he was in the debate club. Uh, he was a national merit uh, scholar finalist, and uh, he was in the top one percent of his class. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, at the end of high school, we were doing our uh, tours around to see where he would go to school. And uh, he wanted to be an engineer, but he wanted to be also involved in kind of the cutting edge. He wanted to work in artificial intelligence. And in fact, he chose Northwestern because they had a master's program in artificial intelligence. So he kind of knew where he, where he wanted to be. But on the flip side, we also found out that there was, he was very sensitive. And in fact, uh, at the age of 12, uh, there was a program at the parochial school. Uh, we're Jewish, and we uh, went uh, to, uh, to Beth Torah. And what happened is that they had somebody at the school talk about mental health and talk about suicide and talk about the prevention of suicide. And basically, when he came home that day from that little get-together, he was very quiet, and he actually went up to his room. And that was very unusual. He would usually talk to us about what happened during the day and everything. And actually, my wife uh, went up, and the door was closed, uh, got inside. And, and basically, from the way that she tells it is that uh, he says, you know, uh, they were talking about me tonight. And that was really our first indication that something was different. And what was really interesting about that was that uh, we, we kind of had an idea that uh, he got a little bit anxious around taking tests. He never had to worry about it. I mean, he had a perfect day average uh, at Blue Valley Northwest. But uh, he did have, when he did not get what he wanted, he got a little bit nervous, a little bit anxious, and a little bit of uh, beating himself up in terms of not doing as well as he thought he would. So this was a this is an open declaration that things were not going well. In fact, he even said that he had thought about this for a couple of years, keeping it quiet since he was 10 years old, and that he even had flashes of suicidal ideation. He at, didn't have a plan. At 10 years? At the age of 10. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so at that point, uh, we knew that uh, there was something up. How did, and what we needed. You yeah. said a little bit about how that manifested um you know, getting upset if things didn't go his way. Was he, would you see uh, signs of just uh, him being alone or, or not a lot of energy or anything at that young age or, or what other kind of signs? Did yeah. You... Well, what we probably noticed the most is that he preferred to, to stay on his own. He was very pensive. Uh, he liked to do projects on his own. He wasn't really into uh, getting involved socially with uh, other kids, even back and forth in fifth grade. So we had an understanding. But we thought at that point that we're both neurologists. We thought at that point that that was pretty healthy, that he was really getting a, an idea about what he wanted to do. What, what he wanted to do from a, a standpoint of, of declaring himself in terms of being the writer and being a drawer and, and basically being a thinker. And we thought that that was a, a very... 
uh, a good thing. Now, we, we were a little bit concerned that he didn't socialize as much as, as a lot of people do. But uh, we thought that maybe he would be able to grow into uh, into his own uh, into his own skin, be able to be able to socialize eventually. When um, when he told you that he was uh, that 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 program that they were talking about him, um, you said that he uh, he was pretty sensitive, and I saw in another video you made a, a perfectionist. You said, um, "What?" Uh, how did that play into, uh, as opposed to uh, someone who's a perfectionist, but it doesn't derail them, what in his life or what did you see in his life that took that above and beyond? And that, is that part of the illness that we don't understand that's actually something going on disease-wise? Like, Well, it is. And when basically what the brain is telling you, and again, as neurologists, we kind of have some insight into this, and this is one of the reasons that I enjoy talking to folks like you uh, in terms of bringing the message across is that it's the brain's perception of what is right. So he had this, always had this perception that he was not good enough. In fact, back in ninth grade, he, uh, as part of a project, the, the teacher was developing a time capsule so that they, during their first year in high school, they would be writing some essays uh, with respect and, and to uh, what was their most important feature, what they fear the most, uh, what they enjoyed the most out of life, uh, what their most uh, important gift was, and what they would change most about themselves. Mm-hmm. And in fact, what happens is that when I go around and, and talk to other people about mental health, which I used to do around Kansas City a whole bunch between 2015 and now, is that I actually bring his essays with me and we talk about it and we talk about the fact that he felt that no matter how much he achieved, that he was still not good enough. And the people that were perfect would be laughing at him for his lack of of continuing to try but never achieving that goal. And in fact, during his essay, he wrote that if he could not achieve that goal, it would have been best if he had not lived at all if he could not get to that point, which was really dramatic to read. The most dramatic thing about his essays is that uh, as freshmen, they were going to write these things. And and after their senior year, they were going to then open up their time capsule. And part of this would be their essays. And uh, the expectation was that they would be able to look back and see, you know, what they were writing about and how they wrote back when they were four years younger and then how much they progressed and how well they're doing now in terms of telling a story compared to where they were in ninth grade. But he forgot or didn't want to show us his essays. Mm. In fact, we did not find his essays until we were preparing for his funeral. Wow. And yeah, and his, uh, his essays were actually underneath his Eagle Scout workbook which he had left at home. So th- this, these essays were actually in full view. This, he, he died by suicide at school at Northwestern at the end of his third year. And, uh, and we actually had an opportunity to kind of see what was going on because after his second year, he, he had a crisis and, and panic and anxiety about going through finals during his second year. And we actually got treatment for him. One of the things that people don't understand is that uh, these people want to get rid of their pain. They want to be better. They 
don't want to die. I mean, suicidal ideation is part of the disease process, and he had depression, anxiety, and perfectionism. But they, the pain that they experience with these illnesses, getting out of that pain is the most important thing to them because it is such, it, it's so hard to understand what people go through because it's a, it's a silent disease. It's, you know, you put on a happy face and you don't see the depression in somebody. You might see, uh, like, them being uh, isolated, lonely. Uh, you can see that they tend to not have many friends, uh, that they tend to not eat as much or sleep as much or perhaps more so. So there's a lot of different ways that even non-verbally that they can tell what's going on. And you're... Your family uh, was very close. People have a stigma sometimes when they hear mental illness or, you know, think that some tragedy or, or different things maybe in the family, you know, causes a break or, or results in what's going on with them. But but you were a very, uh, what looked like, I've followed you on Facebook for years, a loving family. I've seen your trips. You guys traveled, what, all over the world. Uh, he, he seemed to enjoy that. Um, and when you started to see that he was having problems, uh, you guys reached, uh, went to work with him to try to, to get him help. Right. Exactly. So and then that's, yeah, good right. That, that's exactly true. And, and what had happened is that we were very close. In fact, uh, his best friend was his sister and basically his sister and her, uh, Facebook and Instagram posts, uh, particularly on anniversaries, such as his birthday or anniversary of his death, uh, really is poignant the way that she points out uh, that her uh, brother, her friend, her mentor, I mean, the reason that she's in engineering is because he was able to understand how much she really enjoyed it, even though she didn't realize it. And uh, right now she's doing great. I mean, she's a, a biomedical engineer uh, in Memphis uh, creating artificial knees. And, and he, she actually credits him to pushing her to what she could accomplish and I think one of the things that is very important to point out is that the perfectionists try to be the best, the best of the best. And it's not what their perception of the best is, it's what other people's are. And, and that's very difficult to understand, really, as somebody who doesn't have that attribute, is that uh, he feels that no matter how good he gets, his personal best is not good enough that he has to be better than that. And I don't think he recognized exactly how good he was. So it's right. I mean, we had, we were able to get him into psychologists and psychiatrists. We were able to do medications. We were able to do what's called transcranial magnetic uh, stimulation, which actually uh, got him through that uh, summer between his sophomore and his junior year so that he would go back to school. In fact, he missed uh, the finals of his last semester of second year at Northwestern. And he went back uh, a few days early, and he said, "You know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get these these tests taken care of." He went right back, ate those tests, and, and did really well uh, for two and a half semesters before things were off again. And that's the problem: is that uh, you know he knew from us that he could come to us at any point, that we had his back. He had a parachute. He did not have to be the best person. He did not have to be an engineer. He could do whatever he wanted to do, and we would love him no matter what. And the brain of somebody who is in that 
type of situation when things go poorly, they just don't feel that they can get out of it. And they feel that a decision to get out of it in terms of eliminating the pain is the way to go. And we're never going to be able to understand that. We're never going to be able to think. And, you know, I, I keep thinking about it myself as to what was going on in his mind that night. And, and that's what it was. He was a, a loner at school. He was the lounge guy. So he would go out and he would say to his roommate, it's like, I'm going to be in the lounge so I don't bother you. But I think it was his way of, of isolating and, and being in a situation where he could you know, collect his thoughts. And, and that's, the, that's how things really went poorly. So you, um, he, uh, did, you came up to see him shortly before, didn't, didn't he reach out to you and say things weren't going good and he needed to come home? That was before he went back and finished his tests. Is that right? Right. So, yeah. right. So between the second and third year. So, so basically Northwestern's on a trimester situation. So they do their final exams for spring in the middle of June. So they had called us uh, right at the end of May, uh, June 1st. And uh, Karen and my daughter, our daughter, uh, Jennifer, went to Northwestern and actually took them about 45 minutes to answer the door at his dorm. And, then, wow. and they really yeah, and they really knew, obviously, that something was wrong. And in fact, uh, they went to the uh, to the vice president of student medical affairs and to the psychologist and they made a decision to put him on uh, leave uh, right then and there. So, so he came home on June 1st, two weeks shy of taking finals with the knowledge that he would get an intensive outpatient psychological and psychiatric care with this transcranial magnetic stimulation. What was interesting about that summer was he was going to do an internship uh, in Munich. And in fact, we had set up so that we could uh, visit him uh, once he got out there and we were going to take a trip to Germany and Switzerland and, and stop by Munich and, and basically hang out with him for uh, for a few days and, and see how things were going. But he was very excited. He was going to work on a solar energy uh. nanotechnology project and uh, was very excited. But one of the parameters of, of allowing him to even come back was that he would have to forego that trip and go through this type of, of therapy. And he was willing to do so. I mean, I, I really don't think that when he was doing well that he had any type of thoughts that uh, that he did not want to um, that he did not want to be with us, and in fact, even at the very end, he, he wrote that uh, that we had done a really good job and created a great life for him. But that and that we would really not like what he did, and that we wouldn't understand what he did. Mm. He didn't, didn't give us enough credit. I mean, we we knew what was going on. We just didn't have uh, enough time, enough resources at that point in 2015 to uh, to prevent that. Mm. So you received a call uh, from the emergency room. Is that right? How right. you found out? Right, right. So what, what had happened is that earlier, this is this is uh, May 19th of 2015 was that night. But uh, earlier in May, uh, we were trying to find him. He wasn't returning our text messages or answering his phone, his cell phone. And uh, we eventually got the uh, resident advisor from his dorm floor to be able to find him and to tell him that we were looking for him and that he should call us. So over the next couple of weeks, we had a pact that uh, he would contact us every Friday and Sunday. And in fact, he talked to Karen uh, on Mother's Day 
uh, and was and in fact had gotten a, a package. He, he would have turned 21 five days after that. Mm. So uh, so on May 19th that morning, we got a phone call from uh, Evanston Hospital, which ironically was where I did my internship with Northwestern. Oh. Yeah, and uh, and they had said that they uh, the police had been called to the, the university police had been called to the dorm because uh, he was seizing in the lounge and uh, and we kind of knew based on the medication what had happened and uh, that he had overdosed so uh, we told them that and they they promised us that uh, you know that he was doing better and that he would go up to the ICU and, and be able to survive and, and what we thought about as we were driving across from Kansas City to Chicago, uh, the whole way across is, is how we are going to deal with the aftermath of him making an attempt on his life and surviving and trying to figure out uh, the best ways to to circumvent, uh, you know, it, it happening again, of course, but also trying to figure out the next course uh, for him. Uh, again, thinking that maybe he should be closer to home, that maybe he should take some time off and eventually go back in a way that was uh, more mentally healthy for him. And the whole time, and back in 2015, the cell coverage across Western Iowa wasn't the best in the world. So we were kind of losing track of what was happening uh, because we couldn't get in touch with the ICU team. And one of my friends was actually there with him, uh, who was a neurologist, and uh, she was able to uh, to hold his hand and, and to be able to talk to him. And she assured us that early on and then late morning, actually, that uh, that he was doing okay, that he was talking, uh, he was able to actually give the address and the phone number so that the uh, ICU or the uh, emergency room staff could call us initially. And so we just hightailed. It takes about five hours. And unfortunately, as we were going across I-80 uh, near Iowa City, ironically, again, where I went to residency, uh, that's when my friend called me up and said we had to make a decision because he was having uh, a cardiac arrest. Oh. Uh, related to some metabolites from uh, what, what he has ingested, and that's when we knew that uh, the things had had turned really sour, and, and really there was no opportunity for for survival. And us as neurologists, it's the worst thing because we we knew that uh, given the circumstances that they were talking about, that there was there was no return. Mm. You said a couple things. Um that I, wa- I was watching today on a video, and I'll put a link uh, in the, in here so people can see that, but you described it. You said the disease won, and when you talked to the school at Northwestern, I, th- I think you said you'd ask them, uh, you know, what did what are you telling the students that happened to Jason? And they, they said, well, that he died of a seizure. And that was uh, that was a kind of a bitter pill for you, wasn't it? To, because you said, no, he died from suicide, and it seemed like, from the moment that he passed away, there was a, a real transparency from you and your wife to not hide the uh, to not hide the stigma or to or what really happened. And and you were you came right out and said it and started educating people on the fact that it's a that it is a disease. Right, and and, and that's exactly what happened. So uh, what they did is, of course, we went down there. We uh, uh, at the hospital, we were able to to see him. Uh, they had kept him there with the uh, uh, the tube in, and so we uh, we were able to say our, our goodbyes there. And then uh, my parents still live within. Uh, well, my dad has, has passed away 
a few months ago, but uh, they were living uh, in the Chicago area, just about 15 minutes away. And one of the reasons that Jason chose Chicago was first off, I had been there. So he had visited Chicago a whole bunch and, and really loved the city and loved the suburbs. So, uh, so that was not only a great place to go to school, but also uh, from a social standpoint, he was able to, to find uh, my family uh, some support. So, uh, so what happened is that the next day, we stayed with my parents, the next day we went back to the school, and that's where a whole bunch of folks, including his counselor and uh, the dean of engineering and the vice president of medical affairs and the housing uh, person, that they all sat around it. And that's when Karen asked them about what, what they had told the, the students there, because, uh, and, and that's when the vice president of medical affairs, who happens to be a psychologist, said, don't worry. Uh, we told him that he died of a seizure, and, and that's where you know Karen turned into uh, you know, and, and, and said, "You you just didn't do that, did you?" I mean, you have to be you have to be fair with people, and it's not to put guilt on anybody, but it's important for them to learn from what just happened. Why did it really happen? What were the the clues that you could have not to say that? things should have been different. I mean, we always thought that this was always going to be a possibility ever since the time that he told us that he had suicidal ideation. But it was imperative for them to tell the students the truth. And unfortunately, at Northwestern, over the four years prior to it, they were having about four or five suicides a year. Mm. And in fact, we found out through other sources that Jason turned out to be the fourth suicide there in three weeks. Oh my! Right. So, uh, so that's where we decided that we would be very transparent about what happened. I think it's very important for us, particularly in the position that we are as physicians and neurologists, uh, no psychiatry, pretty much backward and forward. We're in fact the board certified in neurology and psychiatry, and we take a bunch of psychiatry during school and during residency. That we were in a position not only to mourn Jason, but also to, to bring life to him, maintain life to him through legacy, through his legacy of being able to inform people, even through his death, about what mental illness really is. Because you probably remember back in 2015, you did not see this as the front story of the Kansas City Star. You did not see this as a, a lead story on the radio or any types of uh, discussions with that. and. Uh, and on television, I mean, over the next five years, we were able to go out into the community and use these types of resources uh, to tell our story and to tell Jason's story and how anybody can be affected by this. Is it, There's uh, one thing that, oh, sorry. go ahead. Well, I was going to say, is it that reaction by, uh, by the dean and those at Northwestern, uh, a perfect uh, uh picture of how people view mental illness if jason had died of a heart attack on the basketball field or or from cancer or something like that they wouldn't change the story to try to like like they're trying to save something that's assuming that there's an embarrassment or that there's that somebody did something wrong and you know they're trying to protect you know don't worry we didn't and that, that's a perfect uh, talking point on i think how people view uh, the depression and this kind of thing that it's a weakness or something that it that it reflects badly on not only the patient but the family exactly you hit it right on the head what what people don't understand is that depression anxiety bipolar schizophrenia about 
95% of suicides, the people who die by suicide have mental health illness. And it's what we call an organic illness. It's not a pretend illness. And what people think about folks with depression and anxiety is that it's a character flaw. They're not trying hard enough. And, and that's basically how people treat people with depression is they say, you know, buck up. You know, uh, it's, it's how can you be so anxious about this test? It's so easy. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Not doing well on a test is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it actually extends out into the next test or in life to be able to get a job. About 43% of people with depression and anxiety can't hold down a job. A lot of people can. A lot of people are what we call functioning uh, mental health illness meaning that they go through life and it looks like they are just doing great. They're doing fine, but underneath it, and you can't see it. I mean, a person that has cancer, that's had chemotherapy, you know it. I mean, they have, uh, they, they, they look like they have cancer. Uh, they're skinny, they have no hair, uh, that type of thing. And uh, a person with a broken arm, you can see it. A person that's, uh, you know, other illnesses, you can see them, you know, shoot, doing uh, insulin shots. So uh, a person with depression, other than perhaps medication, you won't know that they even have anything wrong with them at all. And you don't think so. You think that it's just that they're not showing the effort. They're not showing uh, the ability to handle a situation. And they compare that person to themselves. They're saying, you know what, I can get through this. And that's how they represent it to a person that's depressed. It's like, you know, this is easy. You can let's just get over this. Yeah. And they can't. Do better, I mean, their yeah. brain is telling them they just can't. Yeah. They, you know, they think you're being lazy or, or uh, just lack of effort or you don't care. And, and uh, you can't speak to someone with cancer and say, just get over it. You don't need to have your cells be attacking each other. Just stop it. And, and that's kind of how it is with, I think, with the mental illness. Um, that's, that's exactly right. Did that that's ever, exactly right. Did that ever make Jason um, feel, besides the fact of being a perfectionist and things, did, did he ever express feeling like embarrassed or why can't I cope with life when other people can? Am, am I less of a person or did the actual disease get him down too? Or Yeah, well, I, I think what he ended up doing was comparing himself and, and finding himself in situations where there seemed to be not an end of the tunnel. So he found himself in dark places just like other people can and and just not seeing the uh, the end of the story uh and and any success at the end of the story and in fact he had some insight he he knew in fact he wrote uh, uh in his uh, suicide note that we found on his computer two months after his death that uh, he felt that he could not uh bring somebody else uh, into the world in fact he was uh, talking about ways that you know, even perhaps adoption uh, in, in that way. He didn't want to pass his genes on to somebody so they would experience the same type of hardship and pain that he did. And and he he had incredible insight into what was going on with him. In fact, there were times where he would counsel other people. There was this particular example where we went to summer camp down in Osceola for for Boy Scouts, uh, uh, say, and, uh, and he was was very involved as a senior scout in counseling younger people. There was this one child who, one boy who was just starting out, 11 years old, and he could tell, 
how much pain he was experiencing. He, the boy would be acting out in a way to express his mental illness uh, and his ADHD. And uh, he actually took it upon himself to go into uh, this boy's tent to talk to him for an hour. And the reason that we know about it is not because Jason told us about it later. What happened is at the end of the funeral where the, the people line up to, for the condolences is we had uh, 80 of the kids and their parents dressed up in their Boy Scout uniforms at the funeral. And this kid, who is about four foot five, maybe, was now five foot 11 in between his two parents, dwarfing his two parents. And he was at, close to the very end. And he said, um, Mr. Arkin, I'd like to tell you something. The reason that I have this Eagle Scout on, on my tie right now is because of Jason, because he kept me in the Scouts. I was ready to stop. I, I had enough. And this guy went through, and now at 18 years old, I mean, Jason died when he was 20, so this kid was a couple years younger than him. And he said, this is the reason that I'm standing here today in uniform, is because Jason took the time to talk to me, and he knew exactly what I was feeling and what I was thinking. And, and at this funeral and following the funeral, we were told by no less than three or four different people that the reason that they were even alive was because Jason was able to, to talk to them and to be able to understand their illness. That's That's got to hopefully provide some comfort. It speaks to his character. It's got to be so hard to do that when you're suffering so bad yourself to still be able to have empathy for others. I mean, that's, that's it, it's, an, it's an incredible gift. It was an incredible gift for him. And I think of all the things that he realized that he could do, that uh, that was one attribute that he was able to do. And, and the way I think about this really sad is that he was able to do that for other people. But when it came to himself, that even though he had insight as to what was going on, he didn't know how to, how to fully get out of it. He knew that something needed to be done. In fact, uh, one of his essays, and again, a 14 year old writing this essay about his secrets. And he talked about one of his secrets is the fact that he takes medication to control his depression. And uh, he said, this is a secret that I hold that I won't tell anybody about. And then basically as a 14 year old kind of describing what the stigma is to, to being labeled as a person with depression and the fact that he realized that he would be disfavored in terms of maybe getting a job, maybe getting a promotion, I mean, there's people that if they learn that there's somebody on the road that has depression that of a house that they're looking at might look at it a different way and say, this is, you know, this is not the way I want to live with somebody that is, is unstable, mm -hmm. that's living next door. And then there's, there's actually data to prove that, that people's the social relationships suffer because of the fact that they don't feel not only good about themselves, but about how other people will feel about them. And that, I think that's the, the really sad point there. And I think, again, back to his uh, essays, is that he felt not really good about himself, but more importantly, how other people would actually laugh at him for not being perfect enough and being good enough, that he felt that he had to reach a higher level to accommodate for people's lack of confidence in him. When you say... Uh 
people laughed at him. Were they laughing at, at the fact that he they couldn't understand why he didn't think he was good enough because they saw how good he was? Is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm saying is I think his perception, what his essay was really talking about was his, his perception, perception of what people were thinking. Gotcha. Uh, they were they were not actually laughing at it. Okay. In fact, when we when we, had, when we talked to people, they they were all, they were flabbergasted as to why this would occur in somebody who was that successful, amazingly successful. So that I mean, was his like reality. Was, his reality yeah, was that okay. Yeah, that that's exactly right. And uh, no matter how much we were able to say, my gosh, you're you're doing fine. I mean, yeah, he got a couple B's at, at Northwestern. People do, <laughs> yeah. and uh, but for him, it was the end of the world. I remember that even during his first year, during the second semester, he contacted us, and, and we were out of the country, and um, you know, he was taking some finals, and he was very nervous about it. And we we talked him down, but uh, these things kept coming up at inopportune times, and the most incredible, difficult part of all this is that if it comes down to a time where you don't have the support or you don't think you have the support or you don't even have the energy to reach for the phone to contact somebody, that's that's where people get in the most trouble. That's. I want to be mindful of our time because I told you an hour maybe, but uh, I could talk to you for, forever on this. This is, um, but I want to make sure we get into uh, some hope. I my goal of this is if someone is struggling or knows someone who's struggling, uh, that they can share this with them. Podcasts are pretty becoming pretty popular, um, but to give hope and and uh, also go into some resources and talk about your organization. So before we do that, I want to very clearly lay out, just give you a, a second to say what if you wanted to educate the public, you know, in, in a fairly succinct way on what is depression someone struggling with it or someone that knows someone who's struggling with it or someone that needs to be educated, what would you just say about depression? So depression is basically a mood problem where people have exaggerated uh, responses to normal situations. So uh, there are times when obviously you should be sad, but you should not be sad ongoing for days, weeks, or months in a row when something happens to you. And it's the inability to function, even in some ways to move, to dress, uh, to go to school. I mean, there's a lot of people with depression that simply will not uh, be able to get to school or get to their job uh, because of this overwhelming uh, grief that they're having about a particular situation. And the way that uh, depression is manifested is an alteration, not only of mood, but also uh, an activity level and mindset. So they will have uh, difficulties with staying on schedule in terms of eating, in terms of sleeping, and all that combines to eventually get to a, a belief that they don't really deserve to have friends to actually be around. So that's where it can get really, uh, really difficult. So, so that's depression, and then, and then tied into anxiety. A lot of people with depression also have that, and and that's the inability to basically calm down during a particular situation. So something might happen to you that that's bad, and and you'll obsess about that and feel that that's a self-fulfilling prophecy that, yeah, it's, it's not only happened now, but it's going to continue to happen over and over again. 
And again, it can immobilize people where they just don't want to address the situation head on. And they'd rather kind of go into a cocoon and, and be able to avoid. So, so a lot of people will get into avoidance and they'll feel hopeless and helpless about the situation and eventually feel that they're a burden because who would want to be around or who would want to support uh, somebody who cannot sustain even a, a day-to-day activity uh, and even want to go out in a social situation and communicate outside of their room. So those that, that's the way that they can escalate. So if I was educating somebody in depression, it's not only what they say, but it's what they do and, and how they appear. I mean, they're, they're, they might be disheveled. Uh, they might not have self-care. Uh, you can really see the transition of somebody who is uh, having difficulties and going from reactional mood to uh, real depression. What um, <clears throat> What about the other end of the spectrum, the ones that are you said functioning that are able to go to work. Are there any different signs or any different things uh, in their life that people would look for? So what you're looking for there is basically their, their social relationships and how they, they handle discussions. Um, that, that Those people generally do pretty well on their own, that, that they're really good thinkers, that they know how to organize and, and figure out uh, different problems. But when it gets to... Uh, personal relationships and face-to-face time that they really kind of cringe at that and they try to avoid those types of situations. So you'll find somebody just like Jason, the lounge uh, guy, and somebody will be the cubicle guy mm. and not leave, not leave and, and not, and not leave work. So he's the first one to show up to work and the last one to leave. Uh, and, and people will think of that as being very productive. But what it comes down to is that they are overthinking the situation that they want to make sure that, that everything's right and, and they're fearful of uh, what might be on the other end. Uh, these people sometimes want to actually be away from home. So they, they, they're the opposite. Instead of trying to get them to move to get to where they're going to be, they don't, they don't want to go back to the situation that they feel is, uh, is difficult for them. So, so they'll, they'll appear on the surface to be very hard workers, uh, but in, indeed they're actually isolating themselves uh, from the rest of the environment. What, um, what would you say to someone if they are seeing this in a friend or a family member on how to approach it? Because certainly you, there's probably a feeling, I believe there's a feeling that you think if there's something going on or maybe they're pretty fragile emotionally, you don't want to put them over the edge by bringing it up. And so you avoid it. Is that, is that fair to say? Or? Well, you know, that's, that's a lot about what people think. And that's a part of what I try to educate people on when I'm doing these types of programs and when I'm out in the community and discussing with groups is that avoiding the confrontation or avoiding the questioning and not being forthright and actually saying, are you okay? Are you thinking about hurting yourself? Uh, how do you see yourself uh, getting out of this situation that, uh, that you're in? I mean, the worst thing that you can say is, is what we talked about earlier is, is fuck up. This is no big problem. But try to be an active listener. So ask the questions, even ask the direct questions, because what I think is the most beneficial thing about an interpersonal relationship or discussion is the ability to gain the confidence that that person can come to you and you'll be non-judgmental about the response and that you'll be able to listen to it and not make a quick comeback and say, you know what, if this happened to me, dot, dot, dot. It's more about 
listening to them and validating their feelings and saying, you know what, it sounds like that's a rough spot for you. What can we do to be able to get out of it together and basically make it teamwork and basically try to make sure that they realize that you are going to be an ongoing resource, that you are going to be on their Rolodex and perhaps number one to call if anything goes wrong because you are going to be listening to them actively and being able to understand and make sure that you're watching them and watching not only what they're saying or hearing what they're saying, but watching how they do it and what their nonverbal cues are. And I think that's very important, particularly over the last year or so, is to understand when we're not having the face-to-face meetings, how important the nonverbal cues happen to be and, and just listen for them. And then saying it and bringing it out of the open is not going to drive them over the edge. It's going to validate what they're actually thinking, and then they'll realize that you care enough to ask them that question so that when it's something is going wrong and you're starting to spiral, that they can contact you and you are going to have a non-judgmental way of helping them and addressing what's happening right then and now, even if it's 2 or 3 in the morning. Nothing worse than hearing from someone when, when you're feeling that way. Um, why can't you just get over it? It sends you right into the pit of despair. Like, why, why can I not handle this? What is wrong with me? Yeah, that's absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's kind of the worst thing that you can do because that valid, that validates it in the wrong way. I mean, that, mm-hmm. yeah, they, they understand that, uh, that I, that I just can't do it the way that other people can. And what you want to do during that type of discussion is, is sort of, uh, let's get the playing level a little bit more stable and level so that uh, they understand that, uh, that they can gradually, it's not going to be tomorrow, but that there's time to develop that type of relationship. And that actually helps them in terms of even seeking out help from a uh, professional standpoint. Cause a lot of people who are depressed, anxious, who are at major universities or they're at work, they don't want to give the perception that they're weak because they understand the stigma of that. And so they don't want to give anybody ammunition to think more lowly of them that they already think about themselves. So they, they try to stay away from those situations. When um, I was listening to a program today, this, this young boy said, uh, said, why didn't you tell somebody that your friend was, was struggling so much? And he said, because if, if I, told someone on him and he wouldn't be my friend. And they said, but if you don't tell someone, he's going to be gone and you won't have him as a friend anyway. And so that fearfulness, I think, doesn't doesn't really make sense if you really know uh, the seriousness of what can happen with the disease. Exactly. And I actually talk about that sometimes when I'm uh, even doing lectures to some of the nursing students at St. Luke's is that, uh, you know, Tommy's not going to be your friend anymore because he won't be around and that what you should do is Tommy's going to eventually realize that what you gave him a solid, meaning that uh, he understood exactly what was going on and he was going to risk that friendship to keep you alive and that he's not doing it out of spite. And that is so important to, you know, because kids, they're, they don't think, and that's, and that's part of where I'm sure we're going to go into it, is, is why we chose the, the level uh, of education in terms of how old the people we're going to be talking to. But 
it's in those formative years that the brain has not developed enough to understand the ramifications of a particular activity. So Mm. they just don't know. They don't have this sense of mortality of what their decision, so-called decision, is going to to do, uh, not only to, to their future, of course, but also the people thinking about them and how much they're going to be missed because they feel that the world is better off without them. And until their brain is more mature, and it happens around age 22 or so, where everything is uh, is basically more solid in terms of the connections between the uh, the centers of urgency and uh, and uh, you know, the depression and everything in the amygdala, all of that is not formed yet. So they don't understand the true ramifications of their decisions, of their of their actions, and and so it's important for them to get the guidance that they need when their brain is not uh, stable enough or um, secure enough to be able to account for it. Do you have you seen any studies being a neurologist? Uh, is there a, a definite physical link uh, as far as structure of the body that uh, I, I've I've seen where if people have strokes that their personality changes? Uh, is that true? Uh, is there physical things? Uh, sometimes people say, "Well, your 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 blood, you know, some of your blood and your serotonin and all that's off." I don't know if, if that's true or not, but. What is the physical that that you know of that it adds to right? So, so the basis of of psychiatric uh, illness is all about neurotransmitters, and that's the connection between psychiatry and neurology. So, we work with people mm-hmm. with uh, serotonin deficits, meaning that they don't have enough serotonin. Uh, they may have too much dopamine. They may have too little dopamine, uh, acetylcholine. So, there's different types of neurotransmitters that are either up or down. And that's the basis of uh, some of our therapies, not only in terms of medication, but also electrical and magnetic stimulations, such as ECD and TMS, which I talked about. So so there are. And, and, and the problem is that the brain, when those neurotransmitters are out of whack, uh, become either too calm or too chaotic. And, uh, and what some of the ways that we work in terms of uh, medications and other types of treatment is to, again, level the playing field so that the brain talks to each other in a, in a manner that's productive but not harmful. So, uh, so what happens when people are depressed uh, or anxious is they have an abundance or too little of, of something, and because they can't turn off their brain in a way, uh, then they, they get into trouble that way. So the, that's why people with bipolar don't, don't sleep because they don't have that turnoff switch. And uh, why it's important nowadays to to really investigate that because we have the technology. There's there's PET scans and, and other ways that we can look at the brain metabolism to see what parts of the brain are actually firing too much or too little, and that correlates not only with having uh, mental illness or psychiatric disease, but also gives us an indication about what therapies might help and what therapies to avoid because they're not going to do anything because they don't have that particular abnormality in their brain. What people sometimes think is that all depressed people are the same. And we've kind of gone over this, is, is that the, some are, are very uh, mindful of, of what's going on, but they can't turn it off. And some people just uh, say, that, you know, that it's not going to be me because I'm going to hide from everything and not be able to do anything and, and get the, the wherewithal to move. And that's where you get the different types of 
therapies. But now we have what we call surrogate markers to help us out in terms of getting things better quicker. So that's, that's what this is all about, is not only getting people to therapy, but getting them quickly enough to, to not allow that, uh, that final result. There's certainly uh, a level of heredity, I believe. Uh, and I wanted to thank you, Dr. Arkin. Uh, I, I told you this in a text you, you, pro- you may not remember, but af- shortly after Jason took his life, um, the transparency of you and Karen on social media and some of the things you were doing and talking about it and the conversations that were going uh, led led me myself to get help with something I've struggled with my entire life. Um, I remember when I was younger getting off, coming home from school, I was supposed to go to a football practice and coming home from school. And and I was probably 12 years old calling a bunch of pharmacies and saying, how much Tylenol will I take that'll actually kill me? It was an odd question. And they were like, why are you asking that? Well, my brother took some and I want to make sure he's okay. And I just kept upping the number, you know, and, uh, so I know going way back when I was little feeling so isolated, but when you talked about this, uh, I was at a point where um, I came home one day and my wife had had a friend come over and took all of the guns out of the house. And because she saw something had, had changed in me and, and you know, there were days I couldn't get off the bed and, and you feel so bad. So I understand that kind of, you feel so bad. Like why, why can I not function when other people can, what's wrong with me? And, and there was no answers. This the, the spiraling of the mind just goes darker and darker. And so once I saw that the way you talked about Jason and, and from a medical standpoint gave me, uh, I guess, the, the push that I needed to seek out someone to talk to and to uh, explore medication. And five years later, I, I'm a different person. And I don't know. I don't know what the outcome would have been, but it wasn't going in a good direction. So I thank you. I know you've probably helped countless number of people, but that's, I can just tell you this is a person in front of you that that absolutely uh, changed my life. This, this thing did here. So I appreciate you guys taking the stance you did. Yeah, and, and we appreciate when, when people tell us that, that we don't, we feel that uh, there are a lot of people that are uh, in, in a dark way and unfortunately don't feel strong enough. And I think one of the uh, things that we try to teach people, especially kids, is that there's something to be said about becoming yourself and then to stay within yourself and to be to be you and not to be the expectation of you, but to be the representation and try to do your best. And uh, your, your best is good enough. And uh, there's a place for everybody. And uh, the worst case scenario is when, when people give up on, them, on themselves. And, and we understand why that happens. We know the way the, way the brain works and then how that can make uh, falsehood. And, uh, and it's just not true, but it's just the way that you perceive the world. And that gives you, uh, it gets you into that dark place and you don't know where to turn. So, so part of what we're trying to educate people is to make sure that there's a community effort to watch out for each other and to make sure that they understand that there are people like, uh, like Jason that, uh, otherwise, uh, would be doing great things if not for cutting things short, uh, because of the way they perceived the way things were going. When you said what people can do to help and you said to, to validate, to be, to validate what they're going through and, and just acknowledge that that sounds rough, you know, instead of trying to fix it, 
I think that movement of my wife actually reaching out to a friend and for me to come home and see that all of the fire, I, I used to be a, a police officer, all the firearms are gone out of the house that I can't actually, I sat down, I was upset at first, you know, for letting someone know that I felt that way. But then that was a very validating act that it wasn't just my wife saying, oh, you know, my husband's sad again, but she realized the severity of it. And in her doing that, something began to heal inside that someone actually gets how absolutely terrible, uh, you know, we're suffering inside. And so that, that validation, I think for someone to do that for another person is very uh, effective for some populations. Right. And that's exactly right. And what, what we did even from the beginning in 2015 is uh, talk to community groups. I mean, there's a, a number of different, folks uh, in society that try to bring their kids up in a way that if they don't, if they're not the best at something, then they're not good enough. And I think that even if it wasn't happening like that, I, I, I talked to like a group of, uh, of Asian Americans once and, uh, and they basically it turned from a 45 minute discussion of me talking to a two hour question and answer session as people realized exactly what was happening. And in fact, it led to the kids being involved in the next group a couple months later to make sure that they heard the same message that their parents were hearing. And, and the fact that uh, there comes a time where the plateau is fine. And it just doesn't matter that there is a place for each person in society to excel in the way that they can. And it's not to say that they shouldn't continue to reach and push a little bit but if it comes to the part that is becoming painful and they're feeling that uh, their feelings are being oh, misrepresented gosh. then then it becomes uh, then it becomes a bad pathological issue and to have the people around like your wife to be able to know how to react in a an appropriate way in a very uplifting way. You probably didn't realize at the time, but, but that's what she was doing, was putting the brakes on that spiral. And uh, at the time, it was extremely important. We don't know what time that's going to be. A, a lot of us, like Jason, gave us an opportunity for eight years to be able to try to, to realize how to turn things around. And, and, and various times, we were very successful at that. Other times we, we saw things and we gained the confidence in him that he would be able to come to us with any type of situation that he felt uh, that he was getting into trouble. And that's hopefully the way that you feel now is that seeing it happen once, if anything uh, took a downturn, you're able to say even non-verbally that uh, I, I need that I need that booster. So, yeah. so those are those are the types of attributes and we try to, to teach or to educate regarding uh, self-resilience and being able to understand the positive attributes rather than the negative attributes and really kind of emphasize uh, where people need to be with that so that they can feel comfortable with an occasional failure and understand that that's not a self-fulfilling prophecy. What you said there was I was very uh, deep, that the plateau is okay. Um, for someone that suffers with that, that um, – Knowing that uh, if all I want to do today is sit here and read and I don't have the ability to go out and be motivated or pick up the yard or whatever, that's okay for today. That's, that's what I can do today. And don't, don't um, put yourself down for not being a better version of you because that is what, that is, 
the best version of you for that day. And that's okay. Right. And I think one of the most important messages that we try to instill upon the people that we talk to is that it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to have a bad day. It's okay to have people around you that kind of tend to what you need for that particular moment and that uh, it's not a sense of weakness to ask for help. It's not a sense of weakness to, to get that help because at the end of the day, we all help each other and some people need a little bit more help on a particular day. And uh, in those days where you're not up to it, things will still be there tomorrow. They really will. And to figure out a way to exercise and, and to be uh, proficient at what you uh, what you can do and what you're able to do. And, and then you'll surprise yourself at how much you're able to accomplish uh, once you get through that moment. And I think that's what, what this is really all about, is making sure that uh, we maintain an even enough keel so that we can account for some of the the downfalls and the roller coaster and knowing that uh, we are going to get back up at some point and have that type of encouragement and support and the parachute to allow for days where things are not going well. You have a group that you started or an organization. I wanted to give you time to talk about that if you, if you wish to uh, speak up. us. Is that right? Yes, speakup.us. I went to the wrong one today, and it, it was speakup.com, which is looks a little similar, but... <laughs> I think it's yeah. in Pennsylvania, yeah. Yeah, talk about that. So what we ended up doing after uh, Jason passed away was uh, we wanted to try to figure a way to make him still live uh, in our mind, but most importantly, hopefully, in the people that surrounded him. And, and actually, we got a, a whole bunch of support uh, at his funeral and beyond. And one of the things that even... Karen was wondering what would happen once she got back to work. You know, would, would people actually look upon her as a, as a bad mother, as, as, a, as a bad oh. parent, to be able to allow for this? And uh, and while we were away, with us a planned vacation. We we're up in Canada, and, and just and, and we were in the in the mountains a little bit, and just had a lot of time to think. And it was what was interesting was that even within uh, two days, I, I didn't announce anything, but the way it works in the cyber world these days and back in 2015 was that the information flows. And uh, one of the news stations actually in Kansas City carried the story, and Northwestern's uh, newspaper did. In fact, we talked about it uh, several times uh, in that paper as well as nationally uh, in, in the Washington Post and, and um, a, a couple other places. And, uh, and what uh, we found out is that there was a lot of support. And then and actually that turned uh, Karen into a Facebook person. She said, I don't have time for Facebook, but this was, I mean, she was just getting too much and she's getting all these messages. And um, it's like, we can do something here. So what we did is in conjunction with Allie Doss, who also lost her daughter uh, that same summer, as we formed uh, Speak Up, which stands for Suicide Prevention, Education, and Awareness for Kids United as Partners. And wow, what we saw, okay. yeah, that's cool. And actually, yeah, and actually is exactly what our mission is: is that we want to educate and we want to make people aware that this is a real illness, it's not a character flaw. And we decided to target middle school and high school. Because this is where where uh, Jason got in trouble was that transition from high school to, to college and living 550 miles away. 
from us and uh, not having us as a support system, perhaps, and, and basically talking to folks about exactly that. So we had a couple of different programs, uh, It's Okay, uh, UBU, uh, which talked about uh, you being the best that you can be and uh, that within, within your limits. And, uh, and to keep reaching, but not to try to be the best of the best because that's insurmountable. And uh, and, and we basically went into uh, a number of school districts and uh, and they started doing videos about it and about uh, awareness. And even the, the teachers and the and the principals were involved in their videos. And basically what it, it did was to take it out of the closet, so to speak, and to, to bring it out in the forefront that this is real and that kids were dying. I mean, what, what was happening was that you would you know go to school and, and the desk next to you would be empty and you'd be wondering why. And then they wouldn't talk about it even openly or have the counselors. In fact, since we started the program, and we're not specifically responsible for this, but now there's social workers that are embedded in various school districts uh, throughout the Kansas City metro. There's uh, crisis intervention teams on the police force so that they, they have people and they embed sometimes the, uh, the counselors or psychologists within the framework of, uh, of intervention uh, of somebody at home who is in danger. So, uh, so what we're doing is we're involving all of the, the kids and the students uh, and to have advocates within the administration and to have people uh, within there's something called Zero Reasons Why that we partner with. The Zero Reasons Why was an antidote to the 13 Reasons Why on Netflix, uh, which was uh, mm. basically a terrible thing, yeah. uh, talking about suicide. But, but we found Zero Reasons Why to be the perfect antidote. There's zero reasons why not to be successful. There's zero reasons why not to stick around and, and not die by suicide. So uh, so we wow. instilled all of, those, all of those features and aspects into our program and i believe now we're, we're in uh, several districts i think up to 40 50 schools somewhere in there and we have a program now called sources of strength uh, that basically is a nationally accredited proven uh, peer-reviewed program that talks about uh, resilience and different spokes on the wheel of emotion and of support and uh, we have uh, even student advocates that are working at it and one of our dreams is eventually to uh, drop scholarships of people that are interested in going into uh, psychological uh, fields. In fact, I had one of the, the nurses at St. Luke's just the other day uh, looking to me uh, as finding a preceptor for her. She's going into a psychiatry APN program just two years out of St. Luke's Medical College uh, for the nursing school. So, uh, I mean, those are those are what I believe are success stories of people that otherwise wouldn't be interested uh, of, of going in that direction and starting out in the middle schools and high schools and having those programs available. And the contingency is that the students actually drive the programs with, uh, with oversight of the administration and, and, and teachers who are very interested in the mental health as well as the physical health of their students. That probably has a lot of weight with the students driving it as far as uh, giving it validity amongst those that are suffering Right. I mean, you know, we, we want to make the, uh, like a, the mental health club to be a, a positive uh, discussion, just like uh, would be being in the band or being on a sports team. And there's some, there's some, uh, you know, we, we've actually had uh, some sports uh, people within town that have gone to our walks um, to, to, to work on that. So, um, 
and I think it's very important to make it accessible to everyone to make people understand. Uh, I'm so happy that a number of, uh, of uh, musicians and uh, athletes and uh, performers and actors and actresses that have come forward and talking about their mental illness and talking and normalizing it so that it's not thought to be something that you need to hide. And, uh, and now everybody, it seems to know, and, and, and people are not afraid, and, and particularly the media is not afraid to talk about it and to cover uh, activities that uh, otherwise they wouldn't. Because, again, the, one, of the, one of the mistakes and the stigma of it is that if you talk about it, you're going to drive somebody to do it. And we talked about that a little bit earlier, is that talking about it actually is preventing people from getting into that situation because it normalizes the conversation in such a way that it enriches uh, enriches their thoughts about what they can do rather than what they can't do. What um, if there's a, someone listening uh, today when they hear this that if all they can do is muster up enough strength to just reach out to someone and say like like Jason did you they were talking about me you know that I, I'm having these thoughts. Um, what would be a place that they could go to? Is there a number or a, a organization or that you can reach out to for immediate help? Well, in, in most communities, and, and I know that you're in, in Kansas City, I'm here in Dayton, but uh, generally what happens is there are community health centers. So there's the Johnson County Community Health Center and there's SWOPE uh, and there's uh, an independence uh, comprehensive uh, health centers. And uh, they run 24-7 programs. Uh, the uh, 1-800-suicide uh, prevention number is, is very important to 738255. Uh, or texting uh, 7474 is a way to get immediate help in terms of that. And that's easy to do because everyone has their, their cell phones available. Text 7474. 7474, yeah. Mm-hmm. The main thing is just not being silent, but but tell someone if, if that's all you can do, you know, even if you don't see there's a light at the end of the tunnel, if, if you can have enough strength to, to reach out to someone and, and say, I'm having these thoughts, it's not, doesn't mean you're crazy or anything. You're just, you're suffering and you need help. Yeah. And actually there's a, and I, I don't know exactly where they are with this, but it's very close. Is there just like you dial 911 for mental health, you'll be able to dial 988. Uh, so that'll be a very important tool. And, the, and, and let's say you know somebody who you, you think is in trouble. As the as the adult, as the parent, as the teacher, you can also uh, call into the, the the crisis hotline and to talk about it. In fact, I, I talked to uh, to several people that they reach out to me and they you know they're they're in South Carolina and they have a friend in Orlando and they're trying to figure out what to do. It's like well, call the Orlando Police Department. They know what to do because they have crisis intervention teams that that work with people all the time with this. Um, the other uh, resource that I've been using is called uh, NAMI, which is the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Uh, I've worked with them uh, in terms of their programming, and uh, they are available in uh, in several levels, on state level, obviously national level, as well as the local levels. There's in Johnson County and also in uh, Jackson County. So uh, so basically, uh, I, I try to get people to all those resources, and those particular mental health centers and NAMI, uh, they will have additional resources at their fingertips depending on what 
what the problem might be. And there's some reciprocity between even over the line between Kansas and Missouri. If someone doesn't have a spot for somebody immediately, they will call around and, and find some place that can accommodate them on a, uh, on a quick basis. Uh, there's going to be uh, you know, social workers embedded with the police departments. And I think one of the things that we're learning is that instead of people with mental health going to jail, uh, that they will be going to uh, to these other places, either these halfway places or direct to the, the hospitals. One of the considerations that people always ask me is, well, but there's not enough resources, there's not enough beds for psychiatry. You go to the hospital, you say you're not uh, thinking about hurting yourself or others and that there's not really room for you. I think one of the most important things to recognize is that uh, we are working on trying to get those types of programming in a way that, that there's enough people to, to support them. And uh, we're trying to get legislation across uh, there's a Jason Flat Act where there's education within the schools in August to, to educate people on crisis intervention and hopefully in conjunction with our program as well as other uh, sister programs that are working with us to make sure that, again, we get the conversation going and that we keep the conversation in a way that it's just like talking about everything else. It's talking about uh, cancer and health. And I mean, this is the way people looked at things like cancer and HIV back in the day. I mean, it was taboo. And it was taboo to talk about depression. It's taboo to talk about suicide. It's not. And in fact, if you talk about it, that's the way you can lessen it. Uh, I, would, I just heard that uh, you know, through programming like us and, and, and through others that uh, the suicide rate within Johnson County school system has gone down 33%. Wow. Over a couple of years. That's not where it needs to be, but 33%. Mm-hmm. COVID has done a real number on people. Definitely. Definitely. And then the way that, that COVID works is, is obviously there's, uh, there's various pressures, uh, not only in terms of, uh, you know, people have family members and friends who are dying of COVID. Uh, of course, you have uh, people who have kids who are in the mental health, I'm sorry, in the uh, in the general health, so working in the hospitals that haven't been able to even uh, be with their families so for periods of time when things were really uh, in, a, in a bad way with the virus. So in terms of communi- not only uh, communication, but uh, having somebody to even hold on to. So uh, so there's, and, and then you were going to have the, the crisis after the crisis when uh, the, even the, the healthcare providers are going to be in a way that they're going to have PTSD and, and really need help. So, uh, so there's a lot of fallout from it, and uh, this has been really uh, a damaging situation all the way around. So I, I, I empathize with, with people that are affected by it. Um, I've been you know, frontline. Karen has been frontline, my wife, in terms of working with patients. Uh, fortunately, it seems like things are going in the right direction. But I think what we have to be wary of is after the dust settles is what everybody is doing in terms of their mental health and how they're getting back and normalizing back into society again. Well, doctor, I've I've kept you longer than I said I would, I guess. But uh, is there anything else you would like to say? uh, Any last words to someone feeling uh, like there's no hope right now or or to a caregiver that's maybe wanting to, I think we've we've said it all, but if, if you want to wrap up in any way or just reiterate the most important thing. Well, I think that the most important thing to all of this uh, that we're trying to be through our organization uh, through speakup.us is to make sure that there are open lines to communication and that asking the direct question of 
are you depressed? Are you thinking about hurting yourself or others is not going to drive them to do so. It's going to legitimize their feelings. It's going to tell them there is somebody around to support them, not only now they're in crisis, but also going forward. And let's say you're wrong and that, uh, you know, you ask somebody that question, they say, oh, you're, you're, you're crazy. I'm doing just fine. In a way, if you have that inkling that something might be wrong, you still might be right. And they're still not ready to tell you the whole story. But later on, they'll remember that time that you asked them the question and they'll say, you know what, I can trust this person because mm. they already have some insight to know that I was kind of in trouble before. I just didn't let them know. But, uh, but now is the time. And once they get that communication, so you have to have a, a crisis plan. And that's the whole story is, is to think about it ahead of time so you're not reacting to it. Because there's a number of folks that I know that the first time that they knew something was wrong was after it was too late. And the first presentation of it was a successful suicide. Mm. And most of the time, most of the time, there's some hints. And you have to really work at it. And it's very difficult because people don't have the time to really concentrate on it. But when you think about it, when you think about that the average lifespan of somebody with depression is 25 years less than it would have been when they don't have depression, then uh, there is some significant value at being able to recognize and to act and to be there and hopefully be the one that is the only one maybe that will have listened and be able to circumvent the disaster. I think that's that's great advice. That's great advice. Well, uh, thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule to to do this and for all you're doing. Thank you very much, and I, I always uh, in, enjoy uh, being able to to talk about it because of what again I mentioned earlier. It's a way to keep Jason alive. I mean, whenever I post and whenever I I, I do something. Uh, Everything that, that I do is thinking about the way that he would, ironically, he does not, would not have wanted to have been front center. <laughs> he would not have wanted to, he would have said, what are you doing? <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm hopefully, hopefully doing okay. And yeah. hopefully, hopefully someday that, you know, I, I don't count the people that, uh, that are, that might be being helped. All I know is that if, if somebody hear something that, that hits, hits their nerve and to make them act, to make them understand, to make them communicate with somebody who can help them, then it's all worth it. Yeah. And Jay, I think Jason would understand that. But if one is dying at a young age, we must save them, no matter what the cost. If children are our future, then our future is dying before us, we must find cures. Here comes Jason and Daddy. Okay. Jason, you ready to go on the slide? You're gonna do it again, Jay? Yeah, sure.